Hey friends, it's Corey Andrew Powell here, letting you know it's time to treat yourself with an exclusive Motivational Mondays deal at the NSLS shop. Listeners get 20% off shop-wide with the code MONDAYS. That's M-O-N-D-A-Y-S. Need a new coffee tumbler? Or perhaps you want to keep it classy with a new hardcover notebook? Well, get them on sale. Listen, with this deal, I'm tempted to trade in my bow tie collection for one of those cute NSLS hoodies. And don't forget, use code MONDAYS at checkout. That's M-O-N-D-A-Y-S. Enjoy that 20% off at shop.nsls.org. And stay motivated, leaders. Stay motivated. I'm joined today by creative content strategist and fashion purveyor, CJ Springer. CJ has over 16 years of experience having launched integrated campaigns for L'Oreal USA Paris, Maserati, Procter & Gamble, Coca-Cola, Estee Lauder, Unilever Kraft, Nordstrom, and so many more. CJ, welcome to Motivational Mondays. Thank you so much for having me. That was an amazing intro. I feel so good. <laughs> I'm, I mean, like, girl, you know, save some work for the rest of us. We're <laughs> <laughs> trying to figure out how to retire by tomorrow, so I'm going to give it to y'all all. <laughs> well, look, I think you might be close if you keep up that <laughs> schedule. So that's a really impressive list. So I commend you on all that you're doing. So that's really awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. To begin with, though, you are, as I mentioned, a fashion purveyor, and we will get into that too. But to start with, I want to just, you know, for a moment, speak about how uh, we've had pretty, I would say, few examples of prominent Black corporate figures in fashion. There are some that stand out. Andre Leontali, of course, is one of the more prominent ones who we all loved. We just lost him. Um, I can think of uh, Susan Taylor of Essence Magazine, Mickey Taylor, the beauty director at Essence for a while, um, Lloyd Boston, who I love. And, oh, yeah. You know, but they're just like a handful. So I was wondering, like, who are some of the role models for you, be it Black fashion stylist or otherwise, just whoever it was, who were some of the inspirations for you that made you want to work in fashion? Yeah. So first, I would say before we even got to all of the dignitaries, my my first point of inspiration was my mom. Mm. And she is that fashion girl. I'm from Harlem, born and raised. My parents are both from Harlem, born and raised. And Harlem already has a certain level of cachet and panache when it comes to style. Mm -hmm. So Harlem was my first inspiration to my mom. You know, she's at the top and then Harlem would come underneath that. And and my my dad is in there as well because he also had, he was also very stylish. But because of my mom, the type of exposure that I received to some of these dignitaries, as I call them in the space, you know, Andre Leon Talley was someone that I had looked to for inspiration in so many different ways. I wanted to actually go into the business as a journalist, but that's a whole other conversation. Um, my dad was like, I'm not paying for you to be a starving artist. I'm not wasting my money with you going to undergrad to, to you know, major in print. So you have to figure something else out. Um, but he was one of those first people that I, I definitely looked to and saw and understood. You know, there was also Misa Hilton and Eric Archibald and, you know, Hype Williams. And while he's not necessarily a person that specifically works in fashion, he's fashion adjacent because he has a vision. You know, he's mm-hmm. creative. And that's how I see myself. Like, I don't, I haven't ever, you know, for full transparency sake, worked specifically with a brand. Um, so like I haven't ever worked at Nike or at 
Gucci or at Louis Vuitton, but I've always been adjacent to these brands in some way with the work that I do in marketing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I, I had to also figure out a different angle in a different way because of some of the nuance when it comes to being a woman, number one, um, and then being a woman of color, number Mm. two. So trying to break into those areas sometimes is very challenging. And it's not that you go the other way because of your, your discouragement, you go the other way because there's another way to go. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so that is, you know, how I ended up being, I would say fashion adjacent when it comes to my work. Um, and those were my, you know, points of inspiration that got me there. And I have read other interviews with you where you make a point of mentioning not necessarily finding the space that you wanted to be in. So you made the space you wanted to be in, you know, you sort of created your own opportunity. So talk a little bit about how you did that. Yeah. So I really created that space with my brand from the bottom up. It's currently a podcast. It started out as a digital platform. And, you know, I actually went out into the world at the same time that the Coveter and Shoes of New York were going out. We were all kind of out there at the same time covering fashion, but through the lens of footwear. The Coveter was doing more of a closet thing. And so theirs was a lot more holistic, but I knew that I wanted to touch fashion in a different way. And I wanted to actually touch it. And what did that mean? And how did that look for me? So I always, always, always have had an affinity for footwear. I'm a tomboy. So I've always, you know, I had all the Jordans and all the Air Max and all of that every week. My dad was taking me to buy something on her 25th street. Part of it was that, you know, I've always been a thicker girl. So as I got older, there was a point where high fashion Um, And not couture, but high fashion, ready to wear, you couldn't get anything past a size 10. Mm -hmm. And when you're a black girl with body, that doesn't work. So even (laughs) if you're, you know, even if you're a 10 in the waist, that doesn't mean your hips are a 10 or your thighs are a 10 or your derriere is a 10. Mm -hmm. You know, you might have to get a 12 and get it tailored or get a 14 so you could pull it up. And the one thing that was always true to size, so to speak, was your feet. You know, like your feet don't fail you. Um, And that was where my love for footwear really, really grew was as I got older and I matured. And listen, honey, when you mature as a woman, especially a woman of color, that body starts spreading, child, even if you don't (laughs) want it to, right? (laughs) So all kinds of things start coming up. You may have never had a booty your whole life. And then all of a sudden you hit 25 and now you got all the ass on the planet. So (laughs) it's just what happens. But for the most part, your feet, you know, after you hit about, you know, 16, 17 as a woman, your foot probably won't change. You probably have that same size. And so I started to just get really into designer footwear, not sneakers anymore, but now like, you know, the feminine aspect of it, just shoes and heels and flats and boots. And that was what became the impetus for From the Bottom Up. And I would go and shoot, you know, my subject, so to speak, or or the talent and shoot their shoe collections. And then we would have a conversation about it. And the conversation was always rooted in you know, how you felt about the first pair of shoes you purchased with your own money or, you know, what was the first pair of shoes that caught your eye? Why do you love footwear specifically? And that was the angle of fashion that has always had my heart. 
And that was how I started leaning into it in my own way and creating that space for myself and then innovated it into a podcast, um, which has been out now for three years. So it's, you know, just something that I love and I always will figure out a way to have it be incorporated in my, in my life. Well, I think that's a great example of something we always stress here in in different conversations because we do have, of course, a college-aged audience, and some are non-traditional students who may have graduated as well. But for the most part, you know, it's young college age, and they're they're looking at like what their next career move is or what their first career move, I should say. Yeah. And I think your story is an example of what we always stress, which is you know, find something you love if you can. And turn that into a career. And it sounds cliche, I think, when you're young. But when you get older, like you and me a little bit older, you know, we appreciate the fact that we're not stuck in a a career that maybe we don't love. Right. You know, it's so important. Yeah. So, you know, when it comes to the specific thing of being a purveyor of style or fashion or just a purveyor of a a craft in general, Mm -hmm. because I could say you are a purveyor of marketing. And you happen to work adjacently with fashion. But so as a purveyor of whatever industry, what does that encompass? Does that mean that you are just, you know, you are like the omnipotent, all-knowing of that field? Or what would you say for you as a marketer makes you a, a purveyor of that craft? It's time. You know, being able to be a purveyor of anything means that you put in work. In in respect to me being, you know, a marketer by trade, I've been doing marketing since I set foot on Howard University's campus. You know, I I always like to make it a point to be very clear that, um, and everyone doesn't have this level of, you know, some people just don't know yet. So let me say that. Some people just don't know yet and that's okay. But I was very clear on, you know, what I wanted and how I wanted that to be. Even when my father challenged me to find something else that wasn't just print. But I knew that I still wanted to be able to write in some way. And what was that? So as a purveyor of marketing, I majored in advertising. So I was very clear on getting the tools that I needed to be able to do the things that I wanted to do. And that's one of the things he always taught me, which was you have to do what you have to do to do what you want to do. And what I had to do was get a skill. And what I wanted to do was take what I knew and work where I wanted to work or how I wanted to work. But I couldn't do all that without the skill. Yeah. And being a purveyor means that you have a skill and you take that skill and you hone it and you massage it and you do all the things that are going to make you better. It's just like, you know, a sculptor where they will fine tune and fine tune until you get the David. Or you fine tune and fine tune until you get those ice sculptures that you see at, you know, weddings and wherever else the case may be. Or a person who works out a lot. You fine tune and fine tune until you have that six pack. Um, But there's a working that has to happen in the midst of all of that. And when it comes to fashion for me, that work started as a young girl, about five years old with my mom skipping down Fifth Avenue, going to all the stores and watching her do her thing watching her dress herself, watching her manipulate and touch fabrics, you know, asking questions to the sales representatives and challenging things, you know, in various ways, taking it to the tailor. You know, my grandmother and my aunt were both tailors. My uncle's on the cleaner. So there is always fashion around me in some way. And so I took what I was seeing and 
I read a lot. Um, I minored in fashion merchandising at Howard as well. So I have my advertising as my major, but I have my fashion as my minor because I've got to hone that skill. I need to understand it from all aspects. I took fashion illustration and I'm, I'm not, you know, an artist. I can draw a little bit, but I wouldn't put myself up against anyone who does that. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But I did all those things in order to get you know, rooted in a foundation that was going to allow me to be able to stand in what I know, but also open me up to a world that I didn't know in a specific way, but learned that. We did talk a little earlier regarding people of color in the industry on the executive level. Do you think now that there's more and it's getting better, or do you still think it's a big struggle to find people of color in the executive positions when you're working with these brands? Yeah, I would say the answer is still no. I mean, there are some brands who are trying very hard to make it a part of their now core DNA. And so oftentimes, and um, this is no plug to my brand, it but it is a double entendre. Mm-hmm. You you do have to do things from the bottom up. You can't you can't start at the pinnacle of a thing, right? Um, unless you're there to completely and utterly tear it down. That's you, there's no way because you still got to get to the foundation. And so in some respect, I think some of the brands that are trying, they are, but they're doing things that aren't necessarily seen to the naked eye. You know, they have to start behind the curtain. They have to start at the lower rungs. So that one, the foundation is set. And, you know, when it comes to just people, you you, you bring people in at the ground floor so they can learn and then work their way up the higher up positions are always the most coveted and always the hardest to obtain. So they don't want to let those go just yet, right? Like that would mean that they need to move on to their next best thing. And most of the time they don't have one. That Mm. best thing is currently where they are. Um, Which is also something I just say as an aside, always have a next best thing. Don't get stuck in that one thing. Um, Or don't think that you're limited to just that. I think that overall, to get back to your question, it's getting a little better. You know, you see more black faces, you see the Dapper Dans of the world who are now um, being lauded and as they should. I think that's what, for example, just happened in my opinion with Andre. It's sad because as a person of color who was at the top of his game, he should have had so much more. Mm-hmm. Um, and him being so excellent should have given cause to these brands to bring more of us in. All this time, he's been this example yes. of that greatness. And it's like, so how is there not more of an influx of, we need more of that in our brand to be that thing that Tally brings? And he has so many of them under his wing. I mean, he could make a phone call. There are new young creatives that he could have put in in, in that place. Right? So that's really fascinating. Yeah, it's just these things should be happening now without pause. We should no longer be in a place where we need to explain or overextend ourselves. And I do find that in some instances that still is happening. I mean, before I started where I currently am working, I mean, it was like pulling teeth trying to just get phone calls with some of these companies. Um, and of course, most of that happened prior to the racial reckoning that took place over the summer of 2020. But we still aren't at a place where I believe there is only dialogue around your experience and not you feeling like they're not going to call me back because I'm Black. 
Yeah. Yeah. You know, that feeling hasn't really gone away. I don't know that. I can't say that it won't happen. I just don't know when it's going to happen. Like, I don't think anybody does. And it's not that you ever would with anything in particular, but you want this to kind of have an end date. You know, (laughs) (laughs) just like, you know, it's, it's been long enough. And again, I think that a lot of the brands that Andre has worked with, you know, quite, quite frankly, they should be ashamed. You know, they should be ashamed of what still occurs at their companies. They should be ashamed of how they, in my opinion, treated him as if he should be happy to have been in the room. Quite frankly, they should have been ecstatic to be around him. And I wish that something that he knew, really, I read the Chiffon Trenches over the summer and it was great. It was such a fun read. It really felt like you were having a conversation with him, but there was a sadness to it as well. And I was having a conversation with my fiance while I was reading and I was like, I wish that he didn't want them to accept him so bad. Yeah, that's, you know, it's amazing you say that because that's been something that I've been reading for the, like, I haven't read Chiffon Trenches, but I covered when Anna Wintour wrote that apology letter to Condé Nast. And it was like right around the time when he was sort of doing his book tour. So he was sort of blasting Anna for not doing more yeah, to help that along of people of color in positions at, at Condé Nast. Yeah, I found it to be sad in a way, whereas he seems to continue to want to get an invite to the party so badly from these people. And I'm like, yeah. honey, you are the party. You've you been are the, the party. party. You've been the party. Listen, when Andre stopped writing for Vogue, I stopped reading. And it wasn't just his words. It was his presence. And you felt it in the pages. I can't recall the last time I picked up a Vogue. And I, I mean, I am a collector of magazines. I have, I don't even know how far back some of the issues go that I have. And, you know, there was a point, obviously, where Vogue was the it publication in fashion and you needed to go there to know what was happening. But it wasn't just because it was Vogue. It's because of who was at Vogue. Right, right. And and what he was going to demand in those pages in conjunction with Anna, in partnership with her. You know, she, listen, he was approving her looks. It wasn't the other way around. And if he had just leaned into that, I wish a little bit more. And also I feel like people took advantage of the fact that he was, he wasn't going to do that. And so they knew that and they should have given him more because of that. Well, there is a term that many people may not be aware of that African-Americans are aware of, and it's called play along to get along. Yeah. And, you know, it's a phenomenon in which, you know, you brought up the point of, he almost felt like he was just being there was enough that, you know, it was just enough just to be there versus not only did he deserve to be there, but he deserved to actually be celebrated for being in that space. But many times African-Americans just through whatever the syndrome is that systemically we're a part of, we tend to sort of like, okay, well that's, you know, that's enough. I'll take that. That's fine. Versus demanding what you think you should have. I will say that I think one good thing he did try to do, which is important is when we have the opportunity to empower other African-Americans to have creative opportunities, I would say we should try to do that. And I know that luckily with Andre, he did do that. Uh, with a lot of people. The stories are out there now this week where any chance he had a chance, and he did it for me years ago, which was like, you know, still blows my mind that when I met him. 
So I think what's really important is that we also know that we should be conscious to help make opportunities for each other too, as African-Americans. That said, you know, it still is a part of the initial question and circling back to it is, is there enough of us in the room? No, we need to continue to break down those barriers and break down those doors. But also at the same time, it, you know, it's quite okay for us to build our own things. We just have to support each other in that. We can't always say that and then not match that in action and still have this desire to deign with them, whoever them could be. Um, Because it doesn't always have to just be about black and white. Them could be a lot of different things and a lot of different people, but we have to take that same energy that we place on wanting to be in these rooms and place that on creating our own rooms and building our own tables and establishing our own ways because that's what these people did. They became who they were because they decided that's what they were going to be. Yeah, I think Tyler Perry is a great example of that. Oh, yeah. And in fact, you know, you you used the table uh, analogy, and that's his big famous quote, whereas, you know, he said, eventually, I just built my own table. Yes, exactly. (laughs) I was like, the whole seat at the table thing was just not working for me, so I built my own, you know? Yes. But we've got to, we just got to support each other in, in every, in every aspect, whether it's helping each other to bust down those doors and pull each other up and bring each other into these spaces, or it's supporting one another as we create our own and build our own tables and our own chairs and our own doors. We still just have to show up. Thank you for listening to Motivational Mondays presented by the National Society of Leadership and Success and available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I'm Corey Andrew Powell, and I'll see you again here next week.